I want to take just a few minutes to set up the message for today. As many of you know, transformation is the theme we're exploring this month. Last month was the theme for March was death and endings and transitions, and now we're moving into transformation. And Ruth and Kate and I will explore that in the remaining Sundays of April. Transformation. Transformation is the name of the game for Amicus. What's Amicus, you're asking? Amicus is a nonprofit, a Minnesota nonprofit organization that has 43 years of experience in improving public safety by helping inmates and ex offenders through positive relationship building, through restorative justice practices, and through individualized transition services. Amicus helps inmates and ex-offenders reshape their lives, reach their goals, and make successful transitions from prison back to the community. All of the Amicus programs are relationship-based, are community-driven, are culturally specific, and outcome-oriented. The word Amicus is Latin for friend. I'm sure some of you knew that, but the word Amicus is Latin for friend. And it truly is an amazing organization and one that I uh, volunteer for. And I am incredibly grateful I've had this opportunity over the last three years to volunteer with Amicus as a one-on-one friend to uh, a man who's incarcerated at Lino Lakes Correctional Facility. Uh, Once a month I visit him, we write letters to each other, and it has been one of the most significant things I've done. And I'm grateful for Amicus and the opportunity they've offered me um, to be a friend. One of the things they said in the training, when I did this training three years ago to be uh, an amicus, they said a lot of these people in, in prison don't even know what it's like, really, to have a friend because so much of the relationships they've known before prison and then in prison is based on I need something from you or manipulation or there's a bigger agenda. And so it, it took me and my friend over a year to really begin to build a relationship, but it has been um, profound, one of the most significant things I've done. So I want to invite you, extend this invitation to you uh, to stop by the hub or the other table we have set up downstairs in the social hall to learn more or to sign up to be a one-on-one mentor or volunteer in another capacity with Amicus. They need both men and women volunteers for the one-on-one program. You'll be well-trained, it's a great program, and it will stretch you in powerful ways. I hope you'll think about becoming a volunteer. In fact, after the service, um, Lionel and I will be down there, and you can ask us questions and find out more. So that's the setup for today. Transformation, what Amicus is about, and I'd like to introduce now uh, to you all Lionel Buchanan, who is still involved in the one-on-one program with Amicus. He currently works at Amicus, And actually, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I don't want to tell you his story. I think Lionel should tell you his... We've talked about this, and he has really graciously agreed to share his story with all of us this morning. So will you join me in welcoming Lionel Buchanan and his journey to Amicus, with Amicus. Hello, my name is Lionel Buchanan, as the pastor said. uh, I'm going to give you a little story, a little history about myself and how I came to be involved with Amicus. 
I'm noticed of seven children. I'm a native of Missouri, and I grew up in a, a household where I had both my parents, uh, six brothers and sisters. And uh, my father was a stern man. You know, he was really iron-fisted. You know, he grew up. He didn't physically abuse me, but he mentally just let me know that a man is strong and stand up for your household by any means necessary. And I, would, I always try to please my father. My father was an ex-prize fighter. So I started boxing because he boxed, you know, just to get some that of boys from him, you know. And But with my father, never, I'm not saying what I do or what I've done is because of him, but that's where my anger started because I could never please him, you know, and I began to get real angry about everything. And with the boxing, that turned me into a bully. You know, I couldn't whip my father, but I could whip other people. So I started taking my anger out on other people. You know, as I got older, uh, about a year, a couple of years after I started boxing, I fathered a son. And I began to kind of get away from his mother. I wasn't what you call a responsible father. I did everything but raise my child, you know. And... Being in the sport of boxing or any sport that you're involved, you know, celebrations, that's where you start drinking and using drugs. And with me, that was back in the 60s, so that was when everybody was getting high. You know, I thought it was cool to get high or drink. And I did it to, I got an addictive behavior. So if I start something, I drink it or do it until I pass out or fall out or whatever, you know, until I consume as much as I can consume. Anyway, uh, as I got older, I couldn't find a job because I didn't have job skills. Because after I fathered a son, my father said, well, since you're making babies, you can get out of my house. You know, I can't take care of a grown man. You got kids of your own, you take care of your kids. I can't take care of you and your kids. So at age 17, uh, it wasn't too much. I, I dropped out of school in the 11th grade. It wasn't too much for a man, seven, young man. 17 to do, unless you bust tables or something like that. And the money was too slow for me, so I decided, well, I can get my money quicker. So I started what you call uh, extorting people, taking, taking things. My father made it seem like the more aggressive you are, the more people respect you. But it was, that was his way of thinking, you know, and it, it really it didn't go along with society's way. So I got drunk, stayed drunk, got high, and took what I could to take, to try, call my, I wanted to give it a good name being a responsible father, but I wouldn't give the, mo the mother too much of nothing. So I was stealing in the name of him, but I was doing it for myself itself. Uh, as I got older, I said, well, this is going nowhere. I got to get away from here. So I broke in a liquor store and uh, got caught in the liquor store because I broke my leg when I fell out through the roof. And the owner of the liquor store came in and seen me lying there. He said, oh, just stay there. I'm going to get you some help. He called the police. So, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, when the police came in, they took me to a, uh, a boy's home. Not a boy's home, but it was between a boy's, like a scared straight home. And I sat there for about eight months. I said, I'm not going nowhere. Just, my mother said, well, if you keep going to jail, I'm not, I'm not going to come visit you. You know, I didn't, I didn't raise you to be a thief or a crook, you know, so you have to do that time by yourself.
So then it was a, it was a back in the early late 60s you could either go to jail or you could join the military. So I joined the military. So when I joined the military, I became a full-fledged dope fiend. I shot dope morning, noon, and night because I was stationed in Germany and heroin and all the other drugs was just coming in through Germany. I became a dope fiend. So I didn't think I was a dope fiend until I got back to the States. And I had to kick the heroin habit and had a seizure. I thought I could just quit. But I'd been shooting heroin almost 16 months. So when I got back to the States, I asked God, if you just let me get off this stuff, I'll never use again. No heroin again. You know, I always kept a cause even back, thinking I could trick God, you know. Well, I won't use heroin no more, but I'm going to start drinking more. You know, this is my sick way of thinking. Anyway, when I got back to the United States, uh, the mother of my child let me see my son one more time because she moved on out of state. And uh, my mother, she was getting sick then. My mother was, was, she was the kind of woman that would never let you know she was sick or something's bothering her. You'd have to sit back and watch her, her movements, because she was always doing something. But when she started slowing down doing something, we knew that she was sick. But she never told us that she had cancer. She had bone cancer. And uh, I started drinking heavier then when I got out of service. After I kicked the heroin, I started drinking heavier then. And it still wasn't a, a job out there that I thought should pay me. And I didn't have any skills, but I thought they should make pay me $15 an hour for whatever I knew. You know, that's... That's what's wrong with a lot of us young people then. We just thought we should get paid for skills we didn't have no reason. Anyway, I got tired of Kansas City. I got tired of getting drunk, pot, passing out in cars, arguing with people in the streets. Uh, just tired of Kansas City living. I said, well, let me go somewhere else where it's nice, where life is a little bit more simpler. And I heard a lot about Minnesota. <laughs> so they said it was land of milk and honey. You got jobs. It's, it's, it's beautiful here. I said, I'm going to try Minnesota. So I packed up, moved to Minnesota. I came up here to visit, and I ran to an associate of mine. She uh, told me I could stay over there until I got myself together. And it happened to be on the north side of Minneapolis. Uh, I didn't know the history of the North Side. I didn't know nothing about it. I just knew I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was just happy to be here. So one night, one day in, in 1986, I was sitting out on, a, on my car drinking as usual. And I didn't know that in that neighborhood that you couldn't wear certain colors. Because where I come from, in Missouri at that time, it wasn't, no gangs, it wasn't any gangs in uh, Kansas City. But they were already up here. So I'm sitting on, the, on my car, and I had on the wrong color for the area I was in. So me and this guy got into a confrontation. One word led to another. We kept all we arguing all off and on all evening. I'm drinking. He's drinking. I got a weapon, and I'm angry. So one thing led to another. Later on that evening, he approached me again, and I shot him a few times. But this was just anger and everything I had built up with me. I took it out on him that day. 
I left the scene. And uh, later on that evening, the police had got my license plate number and they traced it back to Missouri. They kicked in my mother's door, they kicked in my brother's door, and they kicked in my sister's door, looking for me. And my mother died, and things she was going through at that time, that didn't help. She said, well, baby, turn yourself in, because they're going to kill you when they catch you, because they don't have the weapon back. Um, I didn't do nothing. She said, yes, you did. You killed that man, because you, you got anger problems. You did it. I told you one day you was going to do that if you didn't work on your anger. She did tell me that. You end up in prison for the rest of your life, or you end up dead, because you need to channel your anger some other kind of way. So I turned myself in. I went through about six to eight months worth of trials, back and forth in trials. So we finally picked the jury, and they set the date. So we went to trial, and one day, one day, and it took them two hours to find me guilty of the crime of first-degree murder. I still didn't want to face that, but when they told me I had a life sentence, you don't really come to grips with that until after you're in prison for about three or four years. You know, you feel your own life or whatever, but I'm going to get out of here. When I went in, my hair was black. When I got to doing that time, I, I slowly watched my hair turn gray. And I said, oh, they do mean life. They mean a life sentence. Well, over these years, I got, my mother passed away a year after I got sentenced. So I started hating God then. I made it all right to hate him then. You took my mother, well, with you. And I carried along a lot of hatred, a lot of bitterness, and a lot of venom toward everybody that was free. I felt everybody that was free had turned their back on me. When I wasn't facing the fact that I put me in prison. Y'all put me in prison. I didn't do nothing. Y'all shouldn't have put me in prison. But I took somebody's life. But I still wasn't coming to grips with me. To, I, in my mind, I think, well, he deserved it. He shouldn't have been messing with me. I should have killed him. That's the way I was thinking then. You know, that's a badge of honor. I took one. I took, took somebody out. You, that's the way sick way of thinking when you're angry and hateful and bitter toward everybody. Nobody does nothing wrong. Everybody does something wrong but you. That's the way I was thinking. After about 10 years... 11 years, Minnesota, because I learned how to box at home. I said, well, I just started taking what I want in prison. When you find a weak person or you find somebody that you don't think deserves to take it. You know, I didn't have no money. I cut ties with my family. Well, my family cut ties with me, you know, because they got tired of me writing letters or complaining I need this, I need that. They just, you in prison, you put yourself there, fend for yourself, you know. Because my family was really disappointed because they felt in their minds that I had a lot to do with mama just passing on. And the stress, and I know it was God's time for come get her, but I didn't help it. You know, I didn't, because she worried a lot. My mother was a real spiritual woman, and she was a real humble woman. Well, my father was, on the other hand, he was real aggressive and real in your face. Well, my mother passed away, and I stopped caring about anybody, living or dead. My mother's gone. I didn't care who else died. So Minnesota got tired of me. Got tired of me getting in trouble, going back and forth to the hole, or selling weed in prison, or extorting somebody. 
we got a place for you. We're going to send you to Kansas where they kill you because Kansas was more of an aggressive prison and the body count was a lot more every month. So we're going to send you to Lansing and see if you make it there with your behavior. They sent me to Lansing, Kansas. And it didn't turn out like that because a lot of people, see Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri, I knew a lot of people in Kansas. So my behavior came, became worse. And after a while, my son got in contact with me. This is a little boy I left a long time ago. He was a man, and he was 19 or 20. 20, I think, 20, because he had to be, yeah, 20 years old. He started getting in contact with me. He said, Pops, can I come visit you? Can I come see you? And, you know, and that, that was a little sunshine in my life because I hadn't talked to him. I just kind of said, well, I, ain't got no, I don't have any kids. I'm, I'm by myself. So me and him started developing a relationship, you know. He had a lot of ways, like me, and a lot of things I wanted him to change because I didn't want him to end up. I would study. I would never uplift prison. I would always make him think that's, and it is, the worst place in the world to be. I would never glorify it. I was always telling him the worst I could about prison because he was in a the gang then. And I asked him, why was you in the gang? He said, well, you wasn't there for me. I had to have some kind of family because his mother had passed away from cancer. He, uh, he came and see me religiously every week for about three years. And uh, one Thursday he came to visit me. He said, Pops, you know what? I said, what? He said, I'm through with the gangs. I got you now. We can talk. I'm through with all that now. This was on a Thursday. Saturday morning, they called me. They called me to the uh, caseworker's desk. I said, your daughter wants to speak to you. I have a stepdaughter. And I said, uh, 5 o'clock in the morning, what she want to talk to me about? So I went to the caseworker's office. They locked the door. said, well, she wants to talk to you. So I called her. And she was screaming and hollering and crying. I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? She said, Daddy didn't kill my brother. I said, what? And it wasn't dawning on me. This is my son she's talking about. She said, they didn't kill Lionel, Daddy. I said, who killed him? Some guys killed him, Daddy. And she was, she was in a lot of pain. And I had to try to be strong for her, but that was a lot. I hated God even more then. I said, every time I try to get close to you or do something nice, I was trying to serve God for myself itself. I was trying to swindle him, be slick with him. If I be nice, you got to be nice to me. You know, this is the way I was thinking. So my son was gone. Now I lost two people I loved and cared about, my son and my, my, son and my mother. So I became short of an atheist. You know, I hated Korans, Bibles, anything that had to do with religion. I, I didn't want to have nothing to do with it. So I kind of calmed down because after my son passed away, it just took a lot out of me. And I became really depressed. So Kansas seemed while well, wasn't, I wasn't aggressive anymore. So they said, well, we can send you back to Minnesota. You're not threatening. So Minnesota took me back. And I came back to the Minnesota system. I still had a lot of anger and hatred toward God or any higher power, anything that had to do with religion. And I, I had to start thinking. I said, well, something I'm doing wrong. I'm not doing something right. It's just bad luck just follows me everywhere. People, my people die like flies. My uncle passed away. And I got into a depressive mode. And they, a guy told me, he said, uh, they're having a restorative justice program. And Amicus had came inside the prison 
and they were bringing victims of murder, uh, families of murdered children, or mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. And I started seeing, Louise had brought people in from the community, and I started seeing their faces and the hurt of people, their sons and daughters and wives and husbands that had been taken by violence. Because I had never put a face on it, because in prison, everybody's a perpetrator. You don't see what you've done, you see the people that done it, you know. And you sit around in prison and everybody's negative, everybody's, nothing's, nothing's good. If the food's bad, the air's bad, uh, we, we don't have nothing to talk about good. If we're not talking about old stories or glorifying old stories, we sit and argue with each other because nobody's, nobody's positive. You're in prison, you're going to be here, so what's happy about it? So, Namikas came in, they thought bringing, like I said, the victims. And you sit around, you hear people's story about how their loved ones died or how they got murdered. And you get to thinking, wow, I did something like that. I took somebody from, I took a father from his kids, his mother, his father, his nieces and nephew. It's a long, when you do something to somebody, it don't stop there. It goes a long ways. It's like, and I took myself away from my family by taking his, his life. It, no, it's a no-win situation. Everybody suffers. But then I start thinking, well, if I felt this way about the guy that killed my son, I know how his parents feel. I know how his children feel. I know how his brothers and sisters feel. And that began to open my eyes about restorative justice, about I'm not a victim. I'm the victimizer. So I can't sit here and be depressed and feel sorry for myself. I'm the one that committed the crime. You know, nobody has to feel sorry for me. I took somebody's life. And so I started seeing it both sides. My son was murdered, and I murdered somebody else's son. So I sit in on these classes, and I got to thinking, well, is there any way I can give back? And I met, I'm still in depression, though. You stay depressed after so many years in prison. I've been in prison 15 years. I stayed depressed a lot. I just was too cowardly to kill myself. I was hoping I didn't wake up the next day. Maybe that would be the solution to my problem. And the more you hope for it, you wake up bright and early every day. It's like, go suffer some more, you know. And uh, this lady, Louise, came in. Would you stand up, Louise? That's the president of Amicus. And she brought a lot of positive programs in the prison where I started thinking and, and started making me change my thought, my thought pattern. You know, there are people out there that do still care, or people that are willing to still treat you like a human being. Because once you're in prison, people shun you like, uh-uh, I'm not going inside of prison. It's like we all hanging from the rafters and throwing stuff at each other or just animals. And there's a lot of people in prison, grant you deserve to be there, there's a lot of people in prison that just never had nobody they could trust. You know, so um, Louise had a program in that restorative justice, and that I heard about Amicus one-on-one. So she introduced me to a guy, which was Russell Ballinger. He works with Amicus. And uh, he said, you want to meet somebody? I said, no, not particularly. No, I, no, I know enough people in here. You know, so he... <laughs> The way he said it, like, you, you want a friend? 
And my antennas went up, friends, you know, he got almost a thousand so-called friends in prison. But if you turn your back, they're going to stick something in your back. So to me, a friend was my mother. Anything outside my mother, I, wouldn't, I didn't trust. I didn't think people were trustworthy, but I'm the criminal. You know, so he introduced me. Me and this guy started writing each other a couple of times, and he introduced me to, he introduced me to a guy named Ray Wiedemeyer. And Ray came up to visit me, a white guy, and slender guy, but he's got a big old heart. He's, what, what, what do me and him have in common? You know, so we sit there and look at each other. <laughs> Ray says, you have anything to talk about? Nope. And I thought Ray was like working for the DOC, an undercover cop. And come to find out information about me, like I had a business or some kind of something to hide, because everybody knew your lives in prison. It's like it was this conspiracy thing. Ray was going to find out something about me to get me more time with a life sentence. <laughs> anyway, I, me and Ray finally started talking and getting to know each other, and he was a friend. When I say friend, I mean a friend. Not to find out what I knew, not to search my history or find out about my family or my crime. He wanted to get to know me, a friend, you know. And if you never had a friend, it's a strange feeling. And once you get one, they come far few and in between. That's the way I was thinking. I said, this guy's all right, you know. He's, he came every other week. The whole three years I was in prison. Oh, the rest of the time I was in prison. He was there. And sometimes I would be lazy and say, I don't want to, I don't get up and put on clothes and go in the vision. Because when you go in the vision room, you have to strip. So I didn't want to go through all that. He said, Well, I'm coming anyway. So this was something you can tell y'all quick. You know, so he would come up there and visit me. And he gave me a lot of insight into what was going on in the world. And I had been in 17 years in, and I had a parole hearing coming up. Ray said, well, you want me to go with you? Couldn't hurt. So we went to the parole hearing, and they said, well, Mr. Buchanan, we're going to continue for three more years. I said, okay. Three years, Ray stuck with me, came and seen me, visited me, and, you know, kept my spirits up. After three years, I went back. They said, well, come back in two more years. This is 22 years now. Well, after two more years, they said, come back in another year and we're going to let you go home. And that man was with me the whole, the whole walk, you know. Just him being in my life took away all the negativity. No, I still had negative parts because I go back in the prison cell. But it was somebody I looked forward to talking to, somebody I looked forward to seeing that didn't have that negativity with him, didn't bring that... Uh, that bad vibe with him. There's always some positive out of him, you know, and that made me feel positive, and it made me strive to do a little bit more because this is a person that cared enough to take their time out to come visit me and care that, don't care what I did. He didn't judge me. He talked to me as me. He didn't rub it in my face. He didn't even mention my crime. I mentioned it to him because it was just wanted him to know. He said, well, I knew, but I, I don't want to talk about it unless you want to talk about it. 
And through Amicus, I met Ray. Ray, would you stand up, please? I know you tried to hide from me. <laughs> That's my mentor. Come on. And he has been in my life ever since then. Louise Wolf Graham, the president of Amicus, was real functional in me getting an apartment. Because when you come out of prison, besides sex offense, having a murder, nobody wants to rent to you. Oh, no, he might run through the building shooting up people. You know, they just don't know that I'm a human being and all they see is my crime and say, well, he's a murderer. I got to be, and I understand they got to be careful of the people that live in their building. You know, but through these people, Louise and Ray, I got transportation, a job, a nice place to live. And they continue, that's, she's my employer now. And they continue to be, because Amigas is like almost a family. It's a family. It's a good surrounding, good place to work. And I enjoy working there. You know, and these people took a chance on me. An ex-felon, a murderer. That's what the state calls me. I'm not anymore. They took a chance on me to say, well, we're going to give him a chance and see what he can do with his life. And ever since then, things have been going well for me. Thanks to Amicus and good friends I have like Ray. And I'm up here to ask you this. We all commit crimes, not all of us, but we all do something that we're not happy with doing. And we, everybody needs a human being to feel human. If you do nothing but write them a letter or visit them once a month. You know, it's a lot of, like I said, it's a lot of people that deserve and need to be in prison. But I'm not the judge. But having human contact makes a, a person think more positive. It, it, it lessens his chance of coming back to prison. Or her chance of coming back to prison. So, I thank you for your time. And I thank you for your ear. God bless you. Thank you, Lionel, for sharing your story. And the thing about this is, friends, is that this is bigger than Ray as his mentor. It's bigger than Louise as the president of Amicus. And they certainly opened the door for me to be involved with this organization. The real story here is that this is our story. These are our people, our brothers and sisters who need a friend, who need a relationship with the community and the real world. And we can do that. It makes a difference. And you can learn more. You can sign up downstairs after the service in the hub. I'll be there. Lionel will be there. Ray will be there. Louise Wolfgram will be there. But this is a couple hours a month commitment that you can make that truly touches and transforms and changes you. <laughs> you can just start there. It may change the person you're visiting, but it'll change you, I promise you.